Well, I appreciate you being with us this morning. I'm going to do my best to wrap up this series that we've been, uh, that we've been in on how to pray. Um, but before I get started with that, let me just remind you of what's happening tonight. Uh, Patient is not preaching with me this morning. I, I, I thought he, we might have done that uh, last week, but we decided to let me finish this. And then this evening, we're going to deal with uh, this issue of Bible and race, uh, he and I together. Uh, and so I invite you to, to, to be here for that or at least tune in online with us at 6 o'clock. Uh, we'll have a time. He and I are going to address some things up front together and then have a time for questions and answers uh, where we get to fire questions up at he and I together and uh, get some answers. So anyway, uh, very much excited about that and looking forward to your participating with us in that. Um, so, so in transitioning, though, to this message this morning, um, I'm going to do my best to wrap up this idea of how to pray uh, and, and hopefully put us in a position to start a new series next week, which is Father's Day, uh, that I'm calling Scandalous Grace. Because if you understand grace, uh, you understand how scandalous it is. The fact that, that, that grace is the unmerited and undeserved favor of God not given to those who have deserved it, not given to those who have earned it, not given to those who have done well enough to be favored by God, not given to those who are religious, not any of that. Just the undeserved and unmerited favor. When you look at what grace is and who God has given his favor to, it is scandalous. And there's people of scandal who receive grace. And so I'm going to start that this next week because here's, here's my fear. Like we go through this series on prayer and the tendency is to walk out thinking, okay, if I pray a certain way, I can get God to do a certain thing, right? Like the secrets of prayer. And God doesn't respond to secrets of prayer, but he does respond based on grace. And so I don't want to give you tools about prayer and then have you walk out thinking, okay, if I can just do this right, then God will do something for me. Whatever God does, it's because of his grace, and it's undeserved, it's unmerited, and it's unending. And so I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to move into a time of grace, and it's significant that I start that series, Scandalous Grace, on Father's Day, because here's what I know. Fathers carry within us uh, this weight and this burden of all the things we've done wrong and not done well enough with our children. And, and it's, it's unique. And I'm not saying mothers don't have some of those same regrets. But I'm saying it's unique for fathers. Uh, to look at a Father's Day and to realize now some of those ways we've dropped the ball. Especially regarding our children. And so I want to talk about grace and introduce this thing on Father's Day. Because fathers, I know, we need it. We need it. And so I'm excited about that. I wrote a little book about this very thing called Scandalous Grace. I haven't given it to anybody, but I wrote it. Uh, and I'm debating whether to give that to y'all uh, sometime next week or during this series. I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to do that yet. I don't know. So I don't know if I trust you enough to do that. Uh, anyway, so in wrapping up this series, let's remind ourselves where we've been. In Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, we have recorded for us what we have come to know as the Lord's Prayer. Now, this is, this is in response to his disciples, Jesus' disciples, 
asking Jesus to teach them how to pray. It's the only thing recorded in scripture that his disciples asked him to teach them because they knew that all the authority uh, with which he lived and all the miracles that he performed came out of his prayer life, his connection with the Father through prayer. And so rather than teach, say, hey, Jesus, teach us how to walk on water, teach us how to you know, get money out of the fish, which Jesus did, which was crazy, uh, teach us how to raise debt. He did, they said, just teach us how to pray. So in response to that question, Jesus taught them this prayer. Now, this prayer is something Jesus could have never prayed himself. He could not have prayed this. Do you know why? Because in this prayer, it says, forgive us our debts. Jesus had nothing to forgive. He had no debt with man nor with God. And and so this is a prayer that Jesus could not have even taught. So the actual Lord's prayer, if you want to know what Jesus actually prayed, is found in John 17. And it would be a great thing for you to do in your own time. Maybe I'll do a series of it sometime. But the series on on Jesus' own prayer, he prays for himself. He prays for his disciples immediately. And then he prays for those of us who would come after. So if you want to know what Jesus prayed for you, Go to John 17 and figure that out. So, but this is what we typically call the Lord's Prayer. And this is what it says. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And it ends this way. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That prayer, many people recognize that prayer, uh, have, 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 have prayed that prayer or recited that prayer just by memory in one way or another, one fashion or another, with maybe some different words thrown in. And we've just kind of thrown it out there without a lot of thought necessarily. The part I want to focus on, we've made it through all of these little stanzas. The part I want to focus on is is verse 13. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This is the focus of this morning. Here's why I want to focus on it. Because that phrase was not included in Jesus's teaching on prayer. That phrase right there was added later. It was not part of Jesus' teaching. So when you read it in the Bible, if you you have a Bible that has that part written in it as verse 13, it should have a little footnote. Most Bibles, if you actually look at the the actual text, most Bibles have a little asterisk, a little footnote down at the bottom. And it says some early manuscripts don't have this part and they add that part in there. Now, traditionally, people have grown up saying this as if it's part of the thing, but it was never. In the earliest manuscripts we have, the earliest recordings we have, it's not there. It was added later. Did any of you know that? Did some of you knew that? No? Well, not, now you learned something. So you walk out smarter than what you came in with. So don't say I never gave you nothing. Anyway, this part right here, this verse 13, is like, it's like the doxology. It's the ending of it. And what it does is it retells and reinforces everything that's contained in the prayer above it. It's it's kind of the the, the encapsulation of all things. For yours is the, all this stuff that Jesus just taught, for yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever, amen. Where did this come from? They just think this up? No, well, this came from, it's very similar to King David's words as recorded for us in 1 Chronicles 29. 
just prior to the temple being constructed by King David's son, King Solomon, King David, in get, gathering all the supplies needed to build this temple, prayed this. This was part of his prayer. In 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles is the retelling of the history in 1 and 2 Samuel. 1 and 2 Samuel is the story of God establishing his kingdom and the first king, Saul, the second king, King David, and the third king, King Solomon. Their, their lives and reign are contained in 1 and 2 Samuel. First, or first Chronicles is just the retelling of all that stuff. It chronicles the history. And so in chronicling the history that had just happened, King David, in setting up the resources for the temple to be built, the temple of God, prays this prayer, and this is in his prayer. First Chronicles 29, 11. Now, now listen to the similarity. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You're exalted as head over all. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever over all. So King David and the people were making provisions for the temple to be built. And they're bringing all the supplies to build the temple. Now I want to share with you what happens when a life and then a people's lives are centered in what's contained in the Lord's Prayer. What that does to the trajectory of a life. What it does to the priorities of a life. King David and the people, his people, were bringing the supplies together to build the temple. David, of his own resource, this was not the, the nation's treasury. This was from David's own supply. He gave himself 110 tons of gold. Do you know how much money that is? Like over $1,000. <laughs> like it's a lot of money. Added to that, he gave 260 tons of silver. That's ridiculous. And then because he led and he led well, the people coming behind him added to that. The other leaders together gave 190 tons of gold, 375 tons of silver, and 675 tons of bronze. That's a lot of stuff. And so I, I sat down this week and I started doing some research on what would this cost in today's market? So the temple... One building, you know what it cost? Just with the wood and the stone, not the gemstones, just the rocks, the wood and the rocks. That came at a cost of $750,000 just for the wood and the rocks. The cost of the silver that was given by the nation, King David and the leaders came to $17,174,000,000. The cost of the gold that the nation, King David, and the people gave $122,736,000,000. So just the supplies, not the bronze and the gemstones, I'm talking just like the, the mass of supplies, came to $139,911,150,000. That's a lot. Now, if you take the people expense, that it took to build the temple. Roughly, looking at scripture and the, 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 the uh, results that we have, 10,000 workers, 3,300 supervisors, working a 12-hour day, a five-day week for seven years. That's how long it took. You come up with a personnel expense 
of $291,581,000. So you put all that together, the grand total, $140,202,731,000 for this one building. Over $140 billion for this one building. Is this not like, wow. Does that sound outlandish to anybody? Like what, why would they, why would they be so over the top generous? Why, what would propel them? Can, can you imagine if, if you're doing a project like this, like this, this project would take precedence over everything, right? I mean, if you were to do this, you'd be cashing in your 401ks. You'd be cashing, you're like, you wouldn't take your vacation stuff. You'd be selling your boats. You'd be, you know what I'm saying? You're like, just what would propel people to make that kingdom such a priority? Because that's what it was. This is what happens when people make that kingdom this priority. You, because they valued above all else his kingdom, his power, his glory. And those who followed him had a different mindset about what those things meant in their lives. Do you understand? See, when our worldview is his kingdom and his glory and his power, we live differently. It just makes people live differently. When you actually believe this stuff, I'm not going to give it lip service. I'm talking, like when you believe this stuff, like his kingdom, like God himself for yours, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever that changes your perspective about this stuff. So when Jesus teaches this prayer, and when it wraps up, when the scribes add this footnote at the end of it, when they say, all these things that Jesus taught, they wrap it up with yours is the kingdom. They're making one overall statement to all that Jesus had taught his disciples. Yours is the kingdom. It's your kingdom, not ours. It echoes back to Psalm 89. The heavens are yours. The earth also. The world and all that's in it, you have found it. It's your stuff. That's what they're saying. God, it's your stuff. It's your kingdom. This world in which we live is part of your kingdom. All the things you've given me, it's all part of your kingdom's resources. That's why Jesus taught in his prayer, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's your kingdom. The first thing we have to acknowledge is that he is of a different kingdom. When Jesus taught your kingdom come, your will be done. He's reminding us of Isaiah 55, 8 that says his ways are the only ways. Your will, your kingdom, his ways are the only ways. When Jesus taught your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What he's saying is your ways in heaven ought to be our ways on earth. It's a different kingdom that we're a part of. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
Like the idea is not that, that we take our kingdom and add it to what God's doing. The idea behind this whole thing is that it's God's kingdom. And everything we are and everything we have and everything we produce is meant to propel and to serve and to honor and extol that kingdom. Because it's all his. There's no Bible word called, it, 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 it means God be praised or praise God. And it's hallelujah. Have you heard that word before? Hallelujah. Yeah. I don't know why any of you don't holler that when I'm preaching because it means praise God. Like if I say something good, if I say something good, I uh, praise God. I uh, spent to get to praise God. If you want to be real true, go hallelujah. I don't get none of that because you're all a bunch of stuffy white folk. But here's the thing. Here's what gets me. Like, like that's hallelujah. And we change hallelujah to hallelujah me. See, hallelujah says praise God, your will be done. Hallelujah me says praise me, my way. I thought that was more funny than convicting. You obviously didn't. Your kingdom come. Kingdom means dominion and authority. Psalm 145, just listen. This is what we're talking about. We're not talking about adding Jesus to what we do to make our stuff better. We're talking about a kingdom. Like we're talking about something that's real. That if we really believe this stuff, it just changes Look at Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion and all he's made and it's his kingdom. He's the founder of it all. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom. They speak of your might. So that all people may know your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures through all generations. All those who have come before, all those who are yet to be. The Lord is trustworthy in all his promises. He's faithful in all he does. He has come, his kingdom has dominion and authority over all things. When the writer, thank you. When the writer says your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, what he's saying is, is it is going on forever. And it's not going anywhere. And God says, you exist to propel my kingdom because my kingdom is bigger than your life. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Yours is the kingdom. When the scripture says in 145 that your dominion endures through all generations, means his kingdom was here before you and his kingdom will be here after you. We're servants in that kingdom. We're not to build our own. It says the Lord of that kingdom who has all authority and dominion is trustworthy in all his promises. The God of that kingdom has thought so much of us that he's made us promises and he's trustworthy in those promises and he's faithful in all that he does. And he moves from his kingdom into our life to bring his kingdom to this world. And he's faithful, whatever that looks like, he's faithful in those things. And his kingdom is established on this earth by people who have faith and believe this stuff. I'm going to give you a great, a simple definition of faith. You know what faith is? Faith is acting like God's telling the truth. 
That's what faith is. When God says something, you realize it's he's in that kingdom. That kingdom rules over all. His, his say is final authority. And when he says something, when we act as if what he's saying is the truth, that's faith. See, faith is proved by trusting God. Why can we trust God? Because it's his kingdom that he is acting from and all his promises are trustworthy. Yours is the kingdom. Man, when we start living as if his really is the kingdom and the dominion, it changes things. Yours is the power. Yours is the power. Psalm 24. Who is the king of glory? It's a rhetorical question. He's not asking for an answer. He's going to give the answer. The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. His is the power. His is the authority. His is the... It's the statement that you are all I need and you are the one I rely on. That's it. End of discussion. I rely on your power, not mine. On your will, not my own creativity. And I'm going to act like I believe you and believe what you said because yours is the power. And because yours is the power, you are all I need. And all my needs are held in you. See, here's the thing. Going back to the Lord's Prayer. Because yours is the power, I trust you to give me this day my daily bread. You understand? You can't trust a God to give you this day your daily bread if that God that you trusted didn't have the power to do it. So over all Jesus has prayed, the tagline is yours is not only the kingdom, yours is the power. And because yours is the power, that means yours is the strength and yours is the ability. You have the strength and the ability to handle all my needs for my, because yours is the power. You have the power to forgive us our debts because yours is the power. You have the power to enable me to forgive my debtors because yours is the power. You have the power to lead me away from temptation and deliver me from evil because yours is the power. All that I need and all that I request and all of my things that I rely is in him and his power. Yours is the power. When I believe that, it changes how I respond, right? Because if I really believe that his is the kingdom and his is the power, I no longer respond to the circumstances of life in frustration and fear, right? Why? Because his is the kingdom and his is the power. His is the authority and his is the dominion. It changes everything if we believe it. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever. If we believe this, we start to understand that what it is we believe and who it is we believe in is transcendent. Transcends where we are and who we are. Revelation 5. As John is transported into this heavenly realm, and he's watching God on the Jesus and the throne and the angels around and martyrs and this incredible scene. 
He says, in a loud voice, these around the throne were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then he says, and then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, everything that has been created, every creature that has been created in heaven, on earth and under earth. He's transported into this moment where he says, and all that the sea and all that's in them, they're saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be what? Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and ever and ever. His is this kingdom that transcends everything. It's this glory. That glory means magnificence and preeminence. This is the kingdom. And this is what by relationship with Jesus we are born into, we're invited into. This is the reality this is the God that we talk about and the one who was slain for our, killed for our sins. This is what we're talking about. See, the idea behind this is we believe that we belong to a different kingdom, that we believe in a different reality, that we have a different expectation because we're expecting a different eternity. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. And all of my life is simply a reflection of who you are. See, the reason the nation of Israel could bring so much resource to the building of God's temple is because they actually believe this stuff. I mean, they, you understand what I'm saying? Like they believe that, that the God that all this is written about is real and he's alive and he's invited people into his kingdom and every word that he utters is true. And it's not just lip service. And it's not just good boy, good girl behavior. Like there is a kingdom and he has all dominion and power and authority because he deserves all glory. And it just changes everything when you believe this stuff. The nation of Israel went under David and Solomon. They set up the greatest, most powerful, most prosperous, most unified country in the world. Why? Because they believed this stuff. They were of a different kingdom. And they knew they were. See, what drove them is that they believed that they belonged to a different kingdom. Not their kingdom, but the kingdom of God. And they believed that they were citizens of a different kingdom. Not their kingdom. The kingdom of God was different. And it was with that kingdom in view that caused them to live as if that kingdom was actually among them. And it changed everything. Do you understand? This prayer, because of its form, is so beautiful and so powerful that it culminates in, Father, yours is the kingdom and yours is the power and yours is the glory. And my life just wants to reflect that. See, here's what I believe. The transformation of communities 
Because at, at the end of the day, when you look at, at, at what state our communities, our states, our, our nation, the world is in, I, I believe this firmly, that the transformation of our communities begins first with the kingdom reigning in us individually first, and then the kingdom reigning in our families second, and then the kingdom reigning in the church third. And only after the kingdom reigns in the individual, the family, and the church will then the kingdom rule in the community. See, and this is completely backwards from what the government thinks is a solution. Here's what I mean. The government wants to start with the community and make rules and laws and reform. Now, certainly laws and rules and reform need to happen in the community. But when has laws and rule and reform ever changed a heart? They're good for trying to keep people in line, but they're terrible at changing a heart. See, the government will never get to the heart of the individual. Therefore, families and individuals will never be changed and transformed. So the place you and I have to start, though culture, community, government has got to change, where you and I have to start is this. Has the kingdom taken over your life. That's where we start. It's easy to talk about what has to happen out there, but the goal is to first talk about what happens in here. So let me pry a little bit, may I? I always in my message get to a point where I get on thin ice and get myself into trouble. So this is that time. Let me just start with this. Has the visible rule and reign of the kingdom of God shown up in every aspect of your life? Now, there's one of two answers. Yeah, no, that's one answer, no. Now, now I'm not saying it's not a priority. I'm asking, is it the priority? It can be a priority, but my vacation is also a priority and my credit card bill is also a priority and my pleasure is also a priority and my hobbies are also a priority. So it may be a priority, but that's not what we're talking about. That's not reflective of the kingdom of the reign and rule of God being evident in all aspects. So one answer to that question is no. It is a priority, but it's not the priority. Let's just be honest, right? The other answer to that question is yes, but not yet. See, the Bible, Christianity, the world of God, has this interesting tension of it, of, of, of both yes and no, of yes, but not yet. And Jesus even talked about this. Jesus said, you will know that the kingdom of God has come upon you when you've seen me do these things. So apparently the kingdom of God had come in that moment. However, he also said, you will know when the kingdom comes upon you when, so it hasn't happened yet. And so the Christian faith lives in this strange tension of the yes, but the not yet. And so if the answer is not no, the kingdom is not part of my life, then the, then the answer is yes, it is, but not really. Like it is, it is, but, but it's not. Like it, the kingdom is, a, is, is the priority of my life most of the time. You, you understand what I'm saying? Because we are fallible, fallen creatures. And it's hard for us to live always with the preeminency of the kingdom of God. But at least there is the acknowledgement that it must be and the obedience to make it so. You know, it's interesting. When, after, the, after the biblical period in the, in the early church period, 
you had multiple early church fathers that were helping the Christian community understand what it meant to be a church and to live in the world and its role in the world. Jesus wasn't coming back right now like they originally thought, you know, and we're still waiting on him and he'll show up when it's good and ready. But they were in this period of waiting, like when's it going to happen? So they were trying to figure out how, what their role was in the world. And they had certain church fathers like Origen, like John of Chrysostom. And one of the things that these early church fathers said was that you may not be a part of our local expression of the kingdom of God. Get this, they were rough. Unless you can prove to us that you are tithing the full 10% and giving above in offerings. How many of you want to be part of their church? <laughs> now, now, here's why. Here, here's why. It wasn't for them. It was so that they could say, listen, it becomes very obvious if the kingdom is your priority. All you got to do is your own self-diagnosis. Is the kingdom the priority of your finances? And is the kingdom your priority with your time? It's real easy to know. You get it? So the first question we have to ask, is the kingdom... Has it taken up residency and is evident in my life personally? If it is, it will change how we live. Secondly, has the kingdom taken over my family? Has the visible rule and reign of God taken over your family? Now, let me really get into trouble. <laughs> let me say this. And I realize I'll put all kinds of asterisks. I understand that there are certain circumstances and situations and things in people's lives that make these things not possible. I understand it. It's not always up to the one's individual decision why things happen in life. I understand all of that stuff. But let me say this. Fathers must stay in the homes of the kids they produce. I don't quote Barack Obama very often, but I will this time. He said, children, regardless of race, raised without a father, are five times more likely to be poor, are nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in jail. Now, moms, you're important too. I'm not, I'm not suggesting like mom and dad together in home, but there is a unique detriment created in kids' lives who grow up without dad. We play a unique, specific role that moms cannot feel and ought not be expected to feel. And because of that, we bear great weight, responsibility, and guilt. And the nation and the community will never, I don't care what government does, will never be healed, transformed, and rectified without fathers being in the homes and married to the mothers of the kids that they create. Will never happen. Fathers have got to get this right. Mothers must stay in the homes with their husbands and husbands must stay in the marriage with their wives. Now I understand there's all kinds of asterisks. I already said that. So please don't like, like, I understand. <laughs> I'm just saying that from this point on, it's on the, it's on your page. I don't know. How to... <laughs> 
do that on your own time. This is my time right now. Listen, the greatest determining factor for the welfare, the benefit, and the trajectory of children's lives is having both parents, mom and dad, in the home staying married. It's the greatest determining factor. Now, for single parents, you're in a tough, 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 an enviable position. And for single parents, the church must stand in the gap. Though it's less than God's design, God has created the church to stand in that gap. But here's how, here's the problem with it. When people in the church aren't individually living with the kingdom of reign in their lives, then the church doesn't live with the kingdom of God reign in its life so that when the single parents come to the church to stand in the gap, the church isn't able to because the kingdom of God isn't reigning. Do you understand? Do you know what the three, the three determining factors in avoiding poverty, do you know what they are? It's pretty simple, actually. The three determining factors. Graduate high school. Let me just say this. If you can't graduate high school in today's America, you don't want to graduate high school. I'm just saying. It, it's pretty easy. Show up, write your name, at least you'll graduate. Secondly is get a job. It's pretty easy to get a job. Also, if you don't mind working. The third thing is, here it is, don't have a baby out of marriage. That's all it takes to avoid poverty. Graduate high school, get a job, and don't have a baby before you marry. It's pretty simple. Now get this. Those are pretty easy things even without the kingdom of God. You don't need the kingdom of God to graduate high school. You don't need the kingdom of God to get a job. And you don't need the kingdom of God not to get pregnant or to make a pregnancy. So imagine what happens when the kingdom of God actually takes up residency in a life and in a family and in a church. Imagine so much better than just avoiding poverty. Imagine for a moment a church made up of people where the rule and the reign of God has taken over their individual lives and their families. Imagine. And imagine a community comprised of individuals and churches who are reaching out and being reconciled with others that's driven by the rule and the reign of God over every aspect. Imagine the justice then. Imagine the opportunity then. Imagine the transformation then. Do you understand what I'm saying? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth that is, exists right now in heaven. Why? Because yours is the kingdom and yours is the power and yours is the glory forever. It's bigger than us. Now there's no doubt that culture needs to change. There's no doubt. I was just talking to my staff about this this week and then I was talking to a group of coaches about this very thing. And we're ta- I was telling them about culture and how vital it is. See, here's the thing. Every Family, organization, group will create a culture. You can't, culture will be created. You'll either create culture on purpose or on accident. And it's vital, the culture that is created. And as I was telling these groups about this idea of culture, I told them this. 
I want to share it with you. Culture is created by two things. It's created by what we teach and it's created by what we tolerate. Culture is created by what we teach. It's important what we teach. But it's also created by, by what we tolerate. Now think about this. Just think about it in your family. Just let me put it in terms of your family. Your family has a culture. And that culture has been created in your family by what you've taught as parents and what you've tolerated as parents. Here's what I mean. You can teach all day long. Be nice to each other. Be kind to each other. Be respectful. That's what we teach. That's the culture we teach. But when what is tolerated is rivalry, comments that hurt each other, putting each other down, and, and kids fighting with each other, what is being tolerated? Guess which culture will win? What you teach or what you've tolerated? Every time. It's good to teach, be kind. It's good to teach, be considerate. It's good to teach, be compassionate. But when you tolerate meanness and bitterness and envy and mean words and hurting each other, that will be the culture of your family. Do you understand? I see this all the time in sports teams. I'm convinced that the number one reason a team never lives up to its potential is this culture issue because coaches can teach full effort, but when they tolerate half-hearted effort from their star players, teams suffer. Do you understand? You understand that? Is that clear enough? So here's the point. Government can teach reform of abusive institutions, and they should. We can protest abuse, and we can call for justice, which we should, but those things might be what we teach but what we tolerate is something different. And in our culture, when abortion is tolerated, when men making babies without being fathers is tolerated, when the government propagates the proliferation and rewards single moms for more babies, and that's tolerated, when the government tolerates check-cashing organizations and Planned Parenthood in minority communities, and it's tolerated and expected, what the culture teaches will always contradict what it tolerates, and what it tolerates will always win over its citizenship. Hallelujah. Do you understand? <laughs> so imagine, Rick, come up here. Um, I'm gonna, this is going to turn into something it shouldn't turn into. I'm just preaching a message in church. Imagine the reform. Imagine the reform. If people lived according to the principles of the Lord's Prayer. Rather than it just being this rote memorization thing. If we understood, imagine. Imagine a culture that teaches justice that begins in the heart of the individual before it shows up in the government. Imagine a culture that doesn't tolerate the destruction of marriage in two parent homes. Imagine a church that teaches mercy and grace and doesn't tolerate injustice. Imagine a society that doesn't tolerate racism anymore, that doesn't tolerate getting away with it anymore. Imagine a society that doesn't tolerate the killing of unborn children that are just as human as those outside the womb. Imagine, if you will, a society that no longer tolerates Men making children and then abandoning families. What I'm talking about, what the Bible's talking about, what the Lord's prayer is praying for is a complete overhaul. A complete overhaul. 
that starts here, works its way in our families, takes over our church, and spills out into the community. It doesn't happen from the government mandating and legislating morality or behavior. That never changes a heart. That's never where God started. And so, let's remind ourselves, Jesus, how should I pray? Jesus, what should be in my prayer? There's so much going on. Jesus, teach me how to approach the throne of grace where I know I'll receive mercy and find grace to help me in my time of need. What do I say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's your kingdom. It's your power. It's your glory. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It's your kingdom. It's your power. It's your glory. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's your kingdom. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Give us this day our daily bread. It's your kingdom. It's your power. It's your glory. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Forgive us our debts. It's your kingdom. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our debts and help me to forgive my debtors. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil because it's your kingdom and yours is the kingdom and yours is the power and yours is the glory. God, it's not about me. It's all about you. And so in this day, in this time, I submit myself to your kingdom. I submit my family to your kingdom. May your kingdom come in my life and around my life. Your will be done in my life and around my life. Yours is the kingdom and yours is the power and yours is the glory. When we actually believe it, it changes everything. So pray with me. Almighty God in this moment. Almighty God in this moment. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come on earth. May your will be done on earth as it is actually done in heaven right now. We want to see the proliferation of it, the revelation of it, the incarnation of it. You have the power. Yours is the kingdom. Give us this day our every need. Yours is the kingdom. Forgive us our debts. Help us to forgive those who need our forgiveness. Yours is the kingdom. 
Father, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us in this moment from the evil one. For we confess that yours is the kingdom and yours is the power and yours is the glory. We just want to reflect that back to you. So have your way, God. Amen.